2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 14 to 17. Uh, though this will be our primary reading, there really is going to be uh, two and a little bit more uh, passages for us this morning uh, that will be sort of our primary texts. So 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 13 to 17. And then Romans chapter 3, we're going to turn to here in just a little while. Uh, though 2 Timothy 4, uh, I'm sorry, 2 Timothy 3, verses 14 to 17. That'll be our primary text. Uh, but today is another one of those topical uh, topical messages. We, we, for some time now, have regularly had topical messages on a Sunday morning. Uh, primarily, those topics this year have been pointed toward those truths that we value as a congregation that, that gather us together, that unite us together. So some of those truths would overlap with other local churches, that we would share the same belief about what the gospel is. Uh, with other congregational, uh, small C congregational or Baptistic churches, uh, we would share in common uh, the meaning of church membership or uh, the, the truth or, or, or meaning of what baptism is. So there'd be some overlap. Uh, there are some truths, though, that we've pointed to that are, that are particularly geared toward our local church that are, that are necessary for us to have unity on in order for us to have a church family together. So we can be Christian brothers and sisters in Christ with, with others who disagree with us on matters, say, of, of polity, that we are an elder-led congregational church, for example. And so other Christians can gather in churches that don't necessarily follow that polity, and we can still be brother, fellow brothers and sisters in Christ along with them. But we all have to, at the end of the day, be organized in a particular way, and so it's necessary that we share some unity on these matters. Today, though, is a topical message, not on those things that gather us together as a as a particular church, but a topical message on, as I've already alluded earlier in uh, today's uh, kind of opening of the, the, the church service, to highlight this time in church history, in human history, uh, because there is more uh, resulting from the Protestant Reformation than, than merely its impact on uh, Christianity. Uh, the Protestant Reformation is that an impact on the world, uh, the Western world in particular, and the rest of the world for uh, because of it. Uh, but we point back to this time not just as a, a cultural shift, not just as a geopolitical shift, uh, not just as a societal shift, though all those things certainly happened during this time period, but in particular as as a time when there was, uh, as historians look back and kind of uh, unpack what happened during the time of the Protestant Re- Reformation, there was a, a recovery of the gospel uh, during that, that time period in the early 1500s and the time that, hap- that uh, proceeded from there. We celebrate that reality, that the gospel was recovered. We are so thankful that there were Christian men and women who stood up against the political and religious leaders of their day and were, were tenaciously willing to even give up their very lives in order to cling both to the word of God, the scriptures themselves, and, in, and especially to the gospel. We celebrate that fact. We, we rejoice in that fact. We, we praise God for that reality, that we have a Bible that's accessible to us, that we have a gospel that has come to our ears and been known to our hearts by God's grace. Uh, these, these are not, uh, they're, they're, they're connected, interconnected. The, the Christians who've gone before us, those who have, have given of themselves before us uh, are, are a major reason why we have the ease of access that we do. It was uh, April of 1521, so right at about 500 years and six months ago uh, right now, when Martin Luther was summoned to the Diet of Worms, or Worms, uh, there in Germany. That's the name of the town, so it doesn't have any association to worms that I know of. Uh, but this this diet wasn't something they were eating. It was a a uh, convention. Uh, there was a convening of a gathering of the uh, civil leaders and religious leaders of that day. Some of them, at least. And Martin Luther was summoned there. He was a, a German monk, a German priest, a preacher in Wittenberg at that time. And so, uh, for for uh, as, as sort of an observer. Uh, Martin Luther was was the the underdog in this in this fight and everything was stacked against him. But Martin Luther was also one up to that point who had preached a lot. He had written even more and his words had had quite literally set the the world on fire, the known world in in uh, Europe and around there. He was being summoned because the emperor, the emperor of Rome, 
uh, was was not happy with what he was doing uh, to the empire. And also because the Roman Catholic Church of that day was not happy with what Martin Luther was teaching and preaching. He thought what he was being summoned to was an opportunity for him to to uh, debate, uh, have a debate about these these truths that he was proclaiming and and some kind of a counter on the other side. When he arrived, however, there uh, in uh, to this diet in in Worms, the very first day he was there. Uh, basically, he was given no opportunity to present his case. The only thing that they wanted to know was, do you recant? Do you take back all the stuff that you've written and said? All his books are there piled on the table in front of him. They asked him, of course, the question, are these, are these your books? And Luther says, yes, they are. And again, that one question they wanted to know is, do you recant? Well, Luther's, as some have said, his less famous uh, speech was given the first day, and that was, can I have some time? Can I think it over? His first answer to the question was, can I have 24 hours to think about this? They reluctantly gave him the 24 hours to think about it, and the next day he came back with an entirely different statement altogether, which we'll read in just a little while. Today, though, we're looking at what are going to be uh, what I think are the two central solas of the Protestant Reformation. The two central solas of the Protestant Reformation. A sola is a Latin word that means alone or only. And there are various doctrines that are attached to these solas uh, that are pointing to the reality that salvation is by grace alone, uh, through faith alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone, and of course, according to the scriptures alone. These are the solas of the Protestant Reformation. But it seems to me that two in particular stand out as the two central solas. We'll be looking at that. And, and one of those solas is highlighted in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 14 to 17. Let's stand together as I read just a handful of verses here. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 14 to 17. And our standing is a way that we can demonstrate reverence for God's word in this, in this peculiar way. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 14 to 17. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Thank you, Lord, for your word. You can all be seated. For those who like to take notes or for those who think linearly, uh, the main point that I'm attempting to make today is, is really kind of twofold. The doctrine of salvation through faith alone is the heart of the Christian gospel. That's a major aspect of what I'm trying to affirm here today. The doctrine of salvation through faith alone is the heart of the Christian gospel. And the scriptures are the ultimate authority for telling us what we must believe and how we should live. The scriptures are the ultimate authority for telling us what we must believe and how we should live. So point number one is just to give a bit of a background. I don't assume that everyone in the room knows what was happening in the 14, uh, 15th and 16th centuries, 14, 15, 16, uh, in uh, the Western world. Uh, but really, it was um, since 1054 AD that the Christian church, that Christianity, we might say, was, was basically divided into two halves, the East and the West. The Eastern Orthodox Church is today what we would recognize as the Eastern portion of the church. And today we would see that the Roman Catholicism is, is sort of the, um, at least during the time of the 1500s, was, for all intents and purposes, the Western church. But history isn't so neat. Uh, so there's not really, if you look through, if you actually read church history, there's not really a time in which there was one church. There was constant infighting among Christians. There was constant debating. As a matter of fact, in the 13s and the early 1400s, there was such political and ecclesiological um, shifting around 
that there was the necessity for a council to be convened, the Council of Constance, which was convened from 1414 to 1418. And this was a time where a council had to get together and decide which of the three popes that existed during that time in the Western church was actually going to be the one pope because there were three different folks who were vying for and claiming right to this one seat of authority. Uh, more can be read about that throughout uh, church history. Again, it's not so neat as I'm making it uh, sound this morning, but basically for our purposes this morning, we might be able to just kind of distinguish from around the, the uh, you know, 1054 is when the, the East and West split occurs. And you have the Eastern Orthodox Church, and then you have the Western Church. But by the time the mid-1400s, and of course during the time of the 1500s, the Roman Catholic Church of that day was the Western Church. Uh, this was the Western Church, and the Roman Pope, or the, the chief pontiff there in Rome, was the head of the Western Church. Now, throughout the 1400s, uh, Roman popes made successive efforts to rejuvenate Rome as the center of the Western Church. Though this happened, and though it was a political and, and religious and, and civil reality, there was already... Before ever Martin Luther nailed the 95 Theses to the chapel door there in Wittenberg, there already was some, some um, dissatisfaction among both the common folk of the Western world and also uh, those who would be of the, the ruling class or the nobles. Trouble was brewing in, in various ways. Social trouble was brewing. Political trouble was brewing. In particular, though, I want to focus in on some of the religious trouble that was brewing and that was three things that I'd like to point out. The first is, is that the, the religious hierarchy was corrupt. And that was, uh, that was observable by anyone who was alive during that period and able to see it. Uh, even, even the Roman Catholic Church today looks back on the 1400s and 1500s and sees that that was a time when Roman Catholicism was not at its best. Simony was not uncommon. That's where you're selling uh, leadership in the Roman Catholic Church to particular uh, folks who have the money to buy that position, to buy that office. And church leaders extorted and manipulated and abused under those authority as well or better than their civil counterparts. So it was not, it was not just local civis, civil magistrates that were doing these kinds of things, but the religious leaders were doing these things as bad or worse than their civil counterparts. So the religious hierarchy was corrupt. Secondly, the priesthood seemed to be a sham. The priesthood seemed to be a sham. Uh, many of the priests, all the priests were supposed to be celibate, but, but many of them, uh, they, they just didn't formally get married, uh, but they were promiscuous. Uh, in fact, there, there was um, the movie that's, that's titled Luther that gives a bit of a, a, a docudrama of Martin Luther's life, the one that was made in 2009, is, is quite good. It's, it sticks pretty closely to what happened in history. I highly recommend it. It's one that we watch almost every year during the time of, the, of this uh, October period of the Protestant Reformation. So I recommend that to you. But when Luther goes to Rome, he sees the priests uh, visiting brothels and things like this, and it is, it is appalling to him. And this was, this was not uncommon. Priests also didn't, many of them didn't speak Latin, which was the language of the church. It's how you communicated theology. It was the language of the only Bible accessible during that day. So it was how you knew what the scripture said. And it was the language in which the church services were all, they, they, all the liturgy was spoken in Latin. And the people speaking the very words that led the church service didn't even know the language. So to anyone watching, the priesthood seemed to be a sham. A third aspect of it was that the way of salvation was superstitious and it was hard work. Whatever Rome taught in theory, the religion practiced among the average Roman Catholic was full of pagan concepts, including talismans. It's like having a rabbit's foot in your pocket for good luck. So a charm that you would wear in order to ward off evil spirits or to make, you know, to, to sort of have some good standing before God. Pilgrimages, if you go to this special place, then you kind of earn credit with God. Also prayers to deified humans, to pray to people that had passed on before and regular payments for religious services. This was the primary thing that got Martin Luther most upset about what was happening in the Roman Catholic Church of his day and in his area. It was the sale of indulgences. Again, Rome didn't officially teach that you can buy your way out of purgatory 
or that you could buy your way into heaven. But this was what was practiced among the average Roman Catholic of the 15th, the, the, the uh, 15th and 16th century. In fact, there was one particular fellow who came rolling into town, not Luther's town. He was barred from coming there by uh, Frederick the Wise. But a town just next door, he came into town saying that if you would, if you would just pay a little bit of money, you, you could see your, your dead relatives that are now suffering in purgatory. You could have them freed. In fact, he even had a little jingle for this. Every time a coin in the coffer rings, a, sur- a soul from purgatory springs. And even rhymes in German, clinked and sprinked. This was the average. This was the average practice of religion during that day. So in sum, the scriptures were inaccessible. Even the priests themselves, many of them, could not read it. The gospel was obscured. The, the church service wasn't centered around teaching or, or open, opening up God's word at all, uh, but rather just this singular uh, experience of the mass. And real absolution, that is assurance that we could be made right before God, was, was all but impossible. Because it was, it was faith in Christ after you've done your best or in doing your best. Uh, this was the way by which God's grace would come to you. So who could possibly know that they were right before God? How could we at the end of the day know that we've done our best? Well, it was into this situation that folks like Martin Luther came and spoke. That essentially God's word was unleashed and the gospel came to light again. Point number two is the material cause. The material cause of the Protestant Reformation. What I mean by the material cause is a language I'm borrowing from one of my favorite theologians who has been dead now for a, a brief period, R.C. Sproul. And I'm sure he wasn't the one who originally coined these terms. But there is a material and a formal cause of the Protestant Reformation. The material cause has to do with that which was immediately uh, tangible to those uh, who, who, were, who were struggling with what should I do to be saved? This is the material cause. It's the necessity to answer this pressing and urgent question. What do I have to do to be saved? And Martin Luther seems to be something of a poster boy for Roman Catholic religiosity in his, in his early life. Like everyone else in the Western world, he was aiming to be a good Roman Catholic. But think about how Martin Luther, in his own experience, he heard the teaching and then tried to put it into practice. So according to Rome, becoming a nun or a monk during that time was almost like starting fresh or being reborn. You could essentially just kind of, you know, all the sin you've committed up to that point was, was all behind you and you get to have a, a brand new slate. And Luther was thankful for that, but it didn't take him long to start thinking, well, I thank you, but I still sin. What do I do with that sin? I still have a problem. Rome offered offered priestly confession or absolution. You could go to a priest. You could confess your sins to this priest. And all the sin that you confessed would be absolved. But Luther notoriously would spend hours in the confessional. Thinking of every possible sin that he had committed over the last 24 hours. And then as soon as he would leave the confessional, he would remember another that he'd forgotten while he was there. He would remember that it wasn't, it wasn't maybe sin from the outside, but it was his motives, the, the heart with which he did the things or didn't do the things that he was supposed to do yesterday was sinful. And so every time he would think of his sin and of his own wickedness, the more he thought on it, the more he realized there, he didn't even know the depth of his own sin. How could he possibly confess all of it? Rome offered indulgences for pilgrimages, as I've already said, and for honoring relics. So if you went to Rome, uh, if you went to the very place where uh, St. Peter's Cathedral at that time was being rebuilt, uh, you could receive an indulgence. That is a certain amount of time off of your own time in purgatory or maybe that of a relative. If you visited certain relics, if you went to the place that had some uh, bones of one of the apostles or, or maybe wood from the cross upon which Christ died, all sorts of things like this, then you, you could receive some indulgence that would be some uh, forgiveness of time 
uh, off of what was going to be yours in purgatory. But after Luther participated in some of these things, he, in fact, in one particular instance, he climbs to the top of what's supposedly the stairs upon which Jesus himself climbed when he came to visit Pontius Pilate. For climbing each one of these steps and saying a certain prayer on each one of these steps, you would receive so many years of indulgence. Luther gets to the top after doing all of this and he uh, says out loud, who knows if it's true? Again, the, the, the utter lack of assurance. You can see it in Luther's own experience. Well, Luther's mentor, a guy named Johann von Stoppitz, he arranged for Luther to study the Bible and to lecture on it in order to help calm his troubled spirit. In particular, uh, Luther was supposed to focus on the Psalms, on the book of Romans, on Galatians, and on Hebrews. And it was in his study of the book of Romans where he kept coming again and again to one particular verse. It's found in Romans chapter 1, verse 17. I'll read it out for you. You can go ahead and start turning to Romans if you like. We're going to be in Romans 3 here in just a moment. Romans chapter 1, verse 17 reads, for in it, that is in the gospel, according to verse 16, for in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. When Luther first came to this passage, he thought that the righteousness of God was referring to God's own righteousness and the standard by which God judges all those who are unrighteous. And so Luther, when he read Romans chapter 1 verse 17 and saw it said that the righteousness of God is revealed in the gospel, he really thought to himself, is it not enough that God condemns us with the law, the Ten Commandments? Does he not also have to condemn us in the gospel? And so when Luther read these words, he saw them as condemning and horrific. In fact, Stephen Nichols writes this about Luther's situation. He says, while Luther's conversion date is debated, the nature of his conversion itself remains remarkable. For Luther, real faith meant coming to grips with the righteousness of God in that passage that we've just read. And so as Luther reflected on the righteousness of God, he did not embrace it. Rather, Luther himself said, I hated the righteous God who punishes sinners. Thus, I raged with a fierce and troubled conscience. This is someone who feels the weight of his own sin. Who feels the weight of the righteousness of a holy God. So often in our day, people take the righteousness of God um, lightly. We take our own sin so lightly. Uh, there have been people, uh, Christians that I've talked with who sometimes would even say to me, you know, Mark, uh, sin is not something you should, you should talk about very often. People know they're sinners. In my experience, friends, people know that they're not perfect, but they don't know they're sinners. People know that they're not as good as they ought to be, but they don't know that they're as wicked as they are. We naturally think we're way better than we truly are. We are not fond of looking at ourselves in the mirror for who we really are. And this, my friends, is the very first and necessary step of coming to grips with our need for a savior. Luther is someone, I think, who recognized his own guilt for what it really was. He saw his sin and he saw the holy God. And he thought to himself, there is no way that this God can have anything but contempt for me. So Luther hated the righteousness of God because he understood it to mean that which he had to achieve. If I have to achieve that righteousness and this is what the gospel tells me, then that news is not good, Luther thought. But Stephen Nichols goes on to say that his breakthrough, the resolution to his long endured spiritual struggles came when, by the mercy of God, Luther finally realized that the righteousness that Paul refers to and that God requires is not something that we have to earn, but it is something that Christ accomplishes 
for us. There's the breakthrough. That the righteousness of God that is found in the gospel is not pointing to God's own righteous standard that we must achieve, but rather is pointing to the righteousness that God gives, grants, imputes to all those who look to Christ for it. And so Luther said, there I began to understand the righteousness of God is that by which the righteous lives by a gift, namely by faith. And this is the meaning, Luther said. The righteousness of God is revealed by the gospel, namely the passive righteousness, that which we don't give any contribution to. We passively receive it. With which the merciful God justifies us by faith. Then Luther said when he came to realize this, Here I felt that I was altogether born again and had entered into paradise itself through open gates. I extolled that sweetest word with a love as great as the hatred with which I had before hated the word, the righteousness of God. So before the righteousness of God, that phrase was something that terrified and and provoked hate in Luther's heart. When he understood it to be that standard that he had to meet. But when he recognized that the righteousness of God that is revealed in the gospel is that which God gives, grants to those who are in Christ Jesus, Luther said, ah, there's freedom. There's joy. There is delight. And so then, the first feature of my main point for today is that the salvation that is accessible only through faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ It is the heart of the Christian gospel. Lose this and you lose the gospel. Lose the doctrine of sola fide, that that salvation is through faith alone. Lose that and you lose the gospel altogether. There is no church. There is no salvation. There is no hope for sinners like us. But have sola fide, the doctrine of salvation, through faith alone. And you have the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. One passage that articulates this so clearly is Romans chapter 3. As I said, we were headed there. Romans chapter 3, verse 21 and following. But now, the Apostle Paul wrote, the righteousness of God has been manifest. You see how he's, he's picking up where we were already considering in Romans 1, 17. The righteousness of God has been manifest. That righteousness that God makes accessible, he gives Two sinners. It has been made manifest. It has been revealed. It has been made clear or apparent. Verse 21, apart from the law. So it doesn't come by way of the law. Although, the Apostle Paul says, the law and the prophets bear witness to it. So the Old Testament, the law and the prophets is a way of summarizing the Old Testament, points to this manifestation of the righteousness of God. But the righteousness of God does not come by way of the law. Verse 22, what kind of righteousness? The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. That's the righteousness he's talking about. That righteousness which comes through faith in Christ for all who believe or faith or trust in the Lord Jesus. Continuing on in verse 22, for there is no distinction. Everybody's in the same bucket. Where are we? For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Everyone's in the same bucket, the bucket of sin. Everybody's in the same condition, the condition of sinful, guilty, unrighteous, deserving of God's wrath. Verse 24, and are justified by his, God's grace, as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Well, there's justification. There is the sin, the sinner who is guilty before God, no longer being counted as guilty, but instead not only being counted as not guilty, having sin wiped clean, but justified, righteous in God's sight. And this is a gracious gift that's through redemption in Jesus Christ, but it still doesn't explain how that happened. Let's keep reading. Verse 25. Whom God, so we're still talking about this Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood. Ah, there's that fun word. Friends, you do not have to know the word propitiation, but you had better know what it means. You had better know the concept to which this points. Because this word 
is the word that gives a sinner like me and you hope. The word propitiation is, it, it refers to a satisfying offering, an appeasing sacrifice. That the God of the universe is rightfully indignant against guilty sinners like us. The bow of his wrath is pulled as tightly as it might go, and the arrow is pointed right at my heart and yours. Because we are sinful, because we are guilty. But what propitiation means is that God doesn't just pretend the bow's not there anymore, but rather he turns the bow toward his son and lets it fly and unleashes the fury of his wrath on his perfect son in the place of guilty sinners. This is the way redemption is possible. This is how redemption is achieved. This is what justification means, is that you and I as guilty sinners, that our sin has been paid for, God's righteous judgment has been unleashed. His wrath has been exhausted. This is why later in the book of Romans, the Apostle Paul can write in Romans chapter 8, that there is now no more condemnation for those who are in Christ. Why? Well, it's because the wrath, the, the, the ledger of God's wrath has been It's been wiped clean, paid in full, has been stamped at the bottom of it. There is no more wrath because it's been exhausted. It's been drained. And Jesus has has ingested the cup all the way to the dregs. Picking up, continuing in verse 25, this, this propitiation that God worked in the person of Jesus Christ was to show God's righteousness. Ah, now we're talking about God's righteousness, his moral perfection. Because how was God's righteousness needing to be justified? Well, because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. The question the Bible wants to know is never, why in the world would God punish sinners? The Bible always assumes the answer to that question because they deserve it. That's why God would punish sinners. It's necessary. God's righteous, sinners are guilty, they deserve punishment. The question the Bible wants to answer, the question the Bible's interested in in delving into is, how in the world can God ever let a sinner like me or you go free? That's the question. So then, verse 26 says, it was to show his righteousness at the present time. It, the person and work of Christ, the propitiating work of Jesus. His atoning sacrifice upon the cross. God's wrath being being poured out on Jesus in the place of guilty sinners shows God's righteousness. So that, completing verse 26 now, he, God, might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. How can God both be just and the justifier? Well, because he did not let sin go unpunished, but instead he punished it in his son so the guilty sinners could indeed go free. And it's in this way that God's justice remains intact. No sin goes unpunished and God's mercy is on display in that sinners like us can go free. This is the doctrine of sola fide. That salvation is by grace alone through faith alone. That there is nothing that we can contribute. There's nothing that we can do. There's no way we can add to what Christ has already accomplished. We merely trust in what Jesus has done. Rome, however, taught and teaches that one is justified through faith and obedience in or to the seven sacraments. Never has the argument between Protestants and Roman Catholics, never has it been about salvation being by faith. Rome and Protestants both believe that salvation is by faith. Protestants are just a bit persnickety in saying, don't forget that last word. Salvation, justification specifically, is by faith alone. Rome teaches that justification is conferred. It comes to the sinner in baptism. I'm quoting from the modern Roman Catholic Catechism, which points back, to various Roman Catholic teaching throughout the centuries. Uh, Most notably, the Council of Trent in the mid-1600s and Vatican II, which is a bit more recent. 
Not only do they teach that justification is conferred in baptism, but that the grace of the Holy Spirit has the power to justify us, that is, to cleanse us from our sins and to communicate to us the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ. Well, that's what we're just reading. And through baptism, they say. There are not just one, baptism being one sacrament, but there are seven Rome teaches. Baptism, confirmation, the Eucharist or the Mass. Penance, the anointing of sick, holy orders, and matrimony. And as Rome teaches, these sacraments form an organic whole. Indeed, the Roman Catholic Church affirms that for believers, all seven sacraments of the new covenant are necessary for salvation. Since they, again quoting Rome, are efficacious. That is, that they bring about doing that which they are pointing toward. Communicating, quoting Rome, the grace that each sacrament signifies. In short, the official Roman Catholic Church's teaching is that justification is by faith and obedience to or in the sacramental system. And this is in direct contradiction to what we, First Baptist Diana, believe the gospel to be. What I'm not saying is that all of your Roman Catholic friends are the worst people ever. I'm not saying that. What I'm not saying is that people who who attend uh, Roman Catholic church buildings on Sunday mornings are all are all lost. I'm not saying that either. They might be just like someone who walks into a Baptist church on a Sunday morning might well be someone who's lost, who doesn't understand the gospel that's being proclaimed. What I am saying, though, is that the official teaching of the Roman Catholic Church was then and is now remains at odds with what Protestants believe. We teach a different gospel here. We teach a gospel that is by grace through faith alone in the Lord Jesus Christ. And there is nothing that you can add to the work of Christ for your salvation, for your justification specifically. As my time is already running short, let me move on to point number three, to the formal cause. The material cause is how can I be saved? Well, the formal cause is really the inevitable question that follows. All right, if Rome teaches this, and if somebody else teaches that, well, then how do we know who's teaching the right thing? This brings us to the formal cause of the Protestant Reformation. Who says? By whose authority? Who at the end of the day has the right to say what is or is not true? Well, Rome in the 16th century and prior to, and also continuing on in through today, points to her own authority, the church itself. Rome says, sacred scripture is the speech of God as it is put down in writing under the breath of the Holy Spirit and holy tradition transmits uh, in its entirety the word of God, which has been entrusted to the apostles by Christ, the Lord and the Holy Spirit. So Rome says that that scripture and the holy tradition, that these are on equal footing. But let's see how that works out in practice. As a result, continuing to quote Rome, the Roman Catholic Church, to whom the transmission and interpretation of revelation of Scripture is entrusted, does not derive her certainty about all, all revealed truths from the Holy Scriptures alone. In other words, the Roman Catholic Church is the one who gets to say what Scripture is and how it's to be interpreted. The Roman Catholic Church is the one who gets to tell you what the Bible is, what content should be there, and what it means. In practice, then, what this works out to be is that the church, its tradition, its authority supersedes that of the scriptures. Because who can point to the Bible and say, well, the Bible contradicts Rome here. Rome can merely say, no, no, the Bible doesn't contradict Rome. You contradict Rome. It's your misunderstanding of the Bible that contradicts Rome. You see how this works out in practice. Well, the reformers pointed to Scripture. They said, look, it's not, it's not the, the Roman Pope who is the final arbiter of truth. The church herself is not who tells you what is true or what isn't true. It is the Scriptures above all else that tells us what is true. So, for example, John Calvin wrote, that the Apostle Paul testifies that the church is built upon the foundation of the prophets and the apostles. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 20. 
And then he went on to say, if the teaching of the prophets and the apostles is the foundation, hear his logic here, this must have had authority before the church began to exist. If the prophets and apostles are the foundation upon which the, the kingdom of Christ is built, then it is the apostles and prophets, the scriptures, whose authority supersedes that of the church. He says, if the Christian church was from the beginning, founded upon the writings of the prophets and the preaching of the apostles, wherever this doctrine is found and the acceptance of it, without the church itself, would never have existed, must, must certainly have preceded the church. So in other words, he's saying that the scriptures and the doctrine that we gain from the Bible, that is what establishes what is true in the world. And that itself is what establishes the church to begin with. So how can the church have any authority above that? He said it is utterly that in it, certain, it certainly depends upon churchly assent. Sorry, I, I skipped my lines there. It is utterly vain then to pretend that the power of judging Scripture so lies with the church that it certainly depends on churchly assent. Indeed, Scripture exhibits clear evidence of its own truth. So you don't have to have a formal institution. Rather, the Scripture is clear in those things that it teaches primarily about. I remember I opened up telling you about this stand that Luther was having to take there on that day in April of 1521. He asked the first day for time to think about how he might answer. And the second day he came back. And when he came back and was standing now again in front of uh, Charles VI, uh, the, the Holy Roman Emperor, he's standing in front of leaders from the Roman Catholic Church. If he doesn't answer with a yes, I recant, he has every reason to believe that immediately following this convening, there's going to be a fire outside and he's going to be roasted in the middle of it. His very life is on the line, everything that he believes and everything that he stands for. It's hard for us to imagine what he must have felt in this moment. And with that kind of weight placed upon his shoulders, he finally responds with words something like this. Since then, your majesty and your lordships desire a simple reply. I will answer without horns and without teeth. That is, without equivocating and without biting back at you, I'm just going to tell you plain. Unless I am convinced by scripture and plain reason, for I do not accept the authority of popes and councils since they have contradicted each other, my, cap my conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot and will not recant anything, for to go against conscience is neither right nor safe. Here I stand. God help me. Amen. Notice where Luther points his, his grounding. He points it not to the Roman church, not to the church fathers, the early writings of Christians. He points back to the scripture. He stakes his life on the truth and the trustworthiness of the Bible. This is the formal cause of the Protestant Reformation. At the end of the day, who gets to say what's true? The reformers said God does. And that's why we point to the Bible. This leads us to our primary passage of the day, which I read out loud a moment ago. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 14 to 17. The apostle Paul there is urging his young disciple in the faith to hold tightly to that which he's learned and the scriptures from which he's learned uh, such truths. And then in verse 16, he says this profound statement, which, which inevitably is the, the high point of revealing what indeed the Bible is. But this is what is assumed throughout the rest of scripture in its entirety. That when the Bible speaks, God himself speaks. And that's the meaning of the phrase that we see there in verse 16 of 2 Timothy chapter 3. That all scripture is breathed out by God. It's inspired by God. It's, it's his own breath that is the words we find in scripture. And therefore, because the Bible, because the scriptures are the very breath of God... That is what higher authority could there possibly be? This is the word of God. This is the final arbiter of truth. God is the one who at the end of the day gets to tell us what's true and what to believe and how to live. And here's where we find it. 
Because the scripture is the very word of God, it is the ultimate authority on every subject to which it speaks. It's not the ultimate authority on uh, the, the pulmonary system in your body. It's not the final authority on how to build skyscrapers. It doesn't particularly speak to those subjects. It speaks to the subject of how a righteous God can make guilty sinners like us right before him and welcomed into right relationship with him. Everywhere that it speaks to something like that, it is true and trustworthy and the ultimate truth. The ultimate authority. It is to be believed and practiced with diligent humility and aggressive devotion. It is profitable, as this, this passage teaches us. It's profitable for teaching us eternal truths. It reproves every sinner. It corrects every error. And it trains the obedient hearer in real righteousness. As Psalm 19 puts it, because Scripture is the very Word of God, it is perfect, it is sure, it is right and pure. It's clean and true And it, above all else, is able to make one wise, enlightened, and joyful. The sola scriptura is the doctrine of the scriptures alone being the ultimate authority in our lives. It's not saying that we should only read the Bible and listen to nothing else that any other Christian says. It's not saying that. As a matter of fact, here today I'm quoting from Christians who've gone before us to show how how we really literally stand on the shoulders of giants, even today. That right now, the truths that we know, many of them, the insights we understand are because Christians who've gone before us have delved into these subjects and given us wonderful insights that we might learn great things from. So to be a Protestant is not to say we have no creed but the Bible, as some might say, which in itself is a creed already. So it's impossible to have no creed but the Bible. We read the scriptures We listen to those Christians who've who've gone before us, who've written down helpful truths insofar as they're faithful to Scripture. And insofar as they're faithful to Scripture, they help us to understand the Bible and to apply it well. Sola Scriptura is also not saying that every particular interpretation of the Bible is valid. That every single person in this room can have whatever uh, his or her interpretation they'd like it to be. No, we should do the hard work of being responsible in our interpretation of Scripture. It means that we should be diligent in our understanding what the Bible says. But it does mean at the end of the day, the Bible is our ultimate authority. Moving now on to point number four, the Reformation continues. There was a context in which the Protestant Reformation happened. There was a material cause. What shall I do to be saved? Look to Christ. Trust in him alone. Who at the end of the day gets to really say whether or not that is all I need to do to be saved? The Bible. The Bible is the ultimate authority. So then the question that we're kind of left hanging with is, does all that stuff really matter still today? Was the Protestant Reformation a a big deal or was it a tempest in a teapot? Was it a tornado in a teacup? Was it something that really should continue to impact us today? Well, as I've already tried to point out, uh, Rome, at least for her part, maintains the what I, I believe to be er- erroneous teaching about what the gospel is and where our authority should be should be found. In fact, uh, Rome back in the 1600s anathematized that is condemned to hell for forever anyone who would believe the very things that we believe here. So if someone says, hey, Mark, you're kind of being rough toward Rome. Rome is the one who said that I was condemned to hell for forever. For believing the gospel that I believe. And I'm merely pointing out that I still disagree. I think the the Reformation continues, though, whether we have any Roman Catholic friends with which we'd like to with whom we'd like to dialogue. uh, The Reformation continues in all of our lives in that we should always be reforming. And that is to say that we should always be coming back to the basic truths of the gospel again and again. And we should always be reading through scripture with the understanding that we are naturally sinful and we always need to be reformed by scripture. That we individually and we as a church constantly want to be coming back to the Bible and seeking to align ourselves with what the Bible says is true. Many of us don't know what the Bible says on the subjects to which it speaks. 
Many of us might be able to maybe proclaim the gospel in order to, to see our friends, or our loved ones, uh, hear the gospel for what it is. But I think a lot of us might have a tough time pointing to any particular spot in the Bible to make, it, make those claims valid. May we be a people who know the book well. And may we be constantly corrected by the Bible. May we also use the Bible in our corrections of others, not merely our personal preferences. I think the Reformation continues today in that there are many who would say that doctrine divides. That we ought to not talk so much about doctrine because at the end of the day, this divides. Friend from friend, family member from family member, sometimes even Christian from Christian. But friends, my argument is that doctrine is our only hope for real unity, actually. The Roman Catholic Church of Martin Luther's day and other reformers was already fracturing. It was the proclamation of truth that rallied together those who believed the gospel as proclaimed by the Bible. It was this proclamation of doctrine, the teachings of Christianity, which rallied together those who loved the Lord Jesus Christ. So indeed, doctrine does divide. But doctrine, our shared doctrine, is our only hope for real unity, not just the absence of infighting. Lastly, the Reformation continues today because the gospel of grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, is our only gospel. That gospel that was recovered during the time of the Protestant Reformation is the only gospel we have. Like, like when Jesus uh, fed those thousands who gathered with a mere a couple of loaves and some fish, and then he preached to them a hard word and many of them left. When Jesus turned to his small group of, of disciples remaining there with him, and he says, don't you want to leave too? May we be like Peter in that instance, saying something that was very good. And that was, Peter responds to Jesus, where else can we go? You have the words of life. His response is, if we could let this go, and if we could go and to have, to have a more peaceful life, one that was a bit more luxurious and comfortable, we would do it. But you have the words of life. And so may God help us not to be those who would be uh, jerks just for the sake of being jerks. Honorary folks just for the sake of being honorary. But may God help us to be a faithful people, faithful first in our own tightly clinging to the hope of the gospel that's been revealed through the scriptures by God himself, that Jesus is our one and only savior. May we cling to him ourselves and may we help others to cling to Christ as well.